Good morning, Aletheia Church. It's good to see you guys. Uh, if uh, Parents, if you want to go ahead and dismiss uh, the kids to Aletheia Jr. Uh, over here to my right, um, you may feel free to do so at this time. For the rest of you guys, if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. That's where we're going to be uh, this morning. Um, if this is your first Sunday here or you haven't uh, uh, gotten a scripture journal yet and you would like one, just raise your hand. That's our free gift to you. We would love to give one of those to you uh, just to be able to have the word of God in front of you, to be able to take notes and uh, you know, kind of just move along with us. I, we would just ask that you would bring those back with you in the coming weeks if you come back to visit us again uh, to be able to kind of take these notes and fill those out. So uh, last week, uh, we started back in our study of 1 Corinthians after we had taken a couple week break during uh, December. And I said last week, as we uh, did the first half of chapter nine, that what we were going to see is actually chapter nine, uh, the way we've broken it down, is kind of a two-part sermon. It's kind of uh, two separate points um, that that Paul is going to make. And, and what I said was, is chapter eight is uh, the beginning of an argument that, that Paul is going to make that's going to then take place over the course of several chapters in this letter to the church at Corinth. And, and what we saw was, is that there was this argument going on inside the church. And if you remember, as Paul's writing this letter to the Corinthians, is there's a lot of disunity and fighting and things like that going on inside this church. So every time he's addressing something, basically he's addressing this issue of disunity inside the church. And this particular issue that he's addressing by the time he gets to chapter 8 is over whether it is acceptable for the Christians inside the church at Corinth to eat meat that had once been sacrificed to idols inside of the temple. So, you know, depending on what uh, temple it may have been, they would have sacrificed meat there, and they would take that meat out into the market and sell it after it had been sacrificed to an idol. And there was a number of Christians saying, well, false gods aren't really real, they don't really exist, so it doesn't matter if we eat this meat or not because there's only one true God and we worship Him and Him alone. Then there were other Christians that were saying, hey, it's actually morally wrong for us to partake in eating this meat because it had been sacrificed to idols. And so there was this disunity happening there. And you'll notice in chapter 8 that Paul theologically agrees with the camp that says that they are free to eat the meat. He says, theologically speaking, they are right. He, but then he says this about them. Well, that particular group is puffed up in their knowledge of what they know to be true about God. So what he says is, is hey, look, we're actually free to eat this meat, but your exercising of that right, of that freedom, has led you to now act in such a way that is not becoming of one that claims to be a follower of Jesus. That you're exercising that right, that you're exercising that freedom at the expense of your brothers and sisters inside of your church at Corinth. And that you're actually leading them to sin because you're violating their conscience. And when you get to verse 13 of chapter 8, this was kind of Paul's resolve or uh, opinion on the issue, he says this, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, 
lest I make my brother stumble. So he, he makes this sweeping statement saying, I'm willing to not participate in this freedom that I've been given as a follower of Jesus if it will help my brother or sister grow closer to God. I'm willing to lay down my own rights, my own preferences for their sake. And so then when we move into chapter 9, Paul's going to unpack this and he's going to say that there's two character traits that Christians should possess in regards to how we treat other people inside the body of Christ, how we interact with one another, how we treat one another, how we live amongst one another. And guys, I, I said this last week to, to an extent, but I'm going to kind of maybe make it a little more clear this morning. I think a lot of the issues that we see inside of churches could be solved if we would just kind of observe what Paul teaches us here in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 through about chapter 11. That if we would simply just kind of observe the example that Paul gives us, which is ultimately Christ's example, a lot of the things that cause divisions and disunity among the body of Christ would be done away with. Because there would be, there would be some clarity brought to whatever particular issue is causing division. And so in that first half of chapter 9, Paul says that kind of the first common character trait that should mark followers of Jesus as they relate with one another is that he's willing to surrender his rights for the sake of advancing the gospel, for the sake of make, making much of Jesus, for the opportunity to tell others what Christ has done and see people grow as followers of Jesus, he's willing to lay down his own rights. And he used his own life as an example of this. He says, I have the right to food or drink. I have the right to marry. I have the right to receive a salary from the church, but I choose not to exercise any of those rights because my reward is freedom in Jesus and seeing other people come to know him as the Messiah. He says, the greater reward is not to exercise my own freedom and my own rights and do whatever I want. The greater freedom is to actually lay down my rights and preferences so that those around me would know who Jesus is better, be loved by me, and be pointed to Christ. That that is the distinguishing characteristic that I am looking to display so that others would know Christ as King. And so in the second half of chapter 9 this morning, we see that second character trait that Paul wants us to see and display. And, and as I said last week, this chapter, if you, if you grew up in the United States, this chapter really attacks us at kind of the core, kind of culturally, of who we are and what we're told to be. Right? What, we, we love our rights. We love our freedoms. We love our sense of justice in America. I mean, like, just type in on your phone, freedom, in the gift search and see what comes up. Right? It's a bunch of American flags and people setting off fireworks and doing things that are crazy. And there's even one guy in Florida in the middle of a hurricane, holding up an American flag, as the, and like half of you guys have seen exactly what I'm talking about, and you're laughing because it's ridiculous, right? This kind of tends to be, though, 
the, the cultural kind of position that Americans, were, were, we are taught from a young age to have. And, and I'm not here to talk about American exceptionalism and work through that and whether that's right or wrong in, in light of being a follower of Jesus. I'm more interested in following the example that Paul lays out for us and where our ideals as Americans or any other country or culture you may have gr- grown up in align with, with the, the teachings of Christ and what scripture might say to us, then, then let's accept them and use them. If not, let's redeem them or reject them. But let's look at what culture tells us and say, is this in line with, with, with who I am free to be in Christ? Or do I need to adjust that? So Paul's main point this week is going to be this. Although I am free from all, I willingly make myself a servant to others. To put it another way, true freedom is found in serving others and God, not yourself. That if you want to live truly free in your life, if you want to experience the most joy you can experience, if you want to experience what it's like to experience true freedom and joy in this life, it's not to do everything that your heart desires. It's not to follow your will. It's not to follow your conscience all the time. True freedom, both according to Christ and according to Paul, is centered around this idea of serving others Serving God, not yourself. I worked at a Christian youth sports camp one summer, and one of the things I loved about that camp is there was this saying that they would teach the kids, and it would be, God first, others second, I'm third. And the whole point behind the camp was, hey, if we want to really enjoy life with one another, this is the model that God has laid out for us. This is God's design to enjoy freedom and abundant life this side of eternity. And so hopefully we'll be encouraged by Paul's example to do this as well as we look at the second half of chapter 9 this morning. Turn over there with me, starting in verse 19. He says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. Now that word servant there is the Greek word doulao. And it comes from this Greek word doulos, which literally means slave or bond servant. So as you read that text there, you're like, okay, a servant. I know what a servant does. I kind of know what it's doing. I don't think that that translation maybe is as strong as what the Greeks would have understood when they would be reading this letter. And the verb itself is in the active voice, but the action's being done to itself. So basically what Paul is saying there is, I willingly make myself a slave to those around me inside the church, to the community around me, and to God himself. 
So this wasn't, you know, American chattel slaves, uh, slave trade where the United States had taken men and women from Africa and put them on a boat and then put them in bondage for life. This isn't the type of slavery that Paul is talking about. Paul is saying, no, I willingly place myself as a servant or a slave to these people so that I might win more of them to the gospel. That I willingly do these things to make much of Jesus. And I'll make myself a slave if I have to. Now, if you're a first century Corinthian reading this letter, you would have understood that Roman slaves had almost no freedoms whatsoever. None. That Roman slavery was even very different from slavery that's described in the Old Testament and that slaves had very, very few freedoms. And so if we put this statement that Paul makes in verse 19 in light of everything that he said previously, he's saying this. You know, as, a, as an apostle, as a church planner, as a pastor, as a follower of Jesus, I am free and not required to conform to anyone's preferences or commands other than God's. But I willingly lay down my rights and become a slave in order to serve other people so that I might win more of them. So that more people might come to know Jesus. So that more people might grow to love Jesus and love other people. And through all of this, God will be glorified and we will see a greater worship of Jesus in Corinth, in Greece, in Rome, and throughout the entire world. And there are successful examples of this line of thought riddled throughout human history. Right? We, we saw this with the civil rights era in the United States. We saw this type of mindset in South Africa with the end of apartheid with leaders like Nelson Mandela. But honestly, probably one of the greatest examples of following Paul's example actually comes from the early church underneath Rome, Roman control and Caesar's control. Uh, this past week, as I was studying some of that, I came across an article in Christianity Today by a guy by the name of Everett Ferguson, and he said this, he says, the church began as a despised and, and illicit, meaning illegal, religious sect inside of Rome. And Christianity endured 300 years of hostility to emerge as the dominant force in the Roman Empire. So if you don't know anything about Roman history, kind of what was going on is there were some religions outside of Roman mythology that were allowed to be practiced inside of the Roman government and inside of the Roman citizenship. And one of those would have even been Judaism. But it had to have some sort of tie to a, a cultural or national heritage once Rome had occupied your nation state. And so... Rome had occupied the, the, the Middle East and modern Arabia for, for some time and even North Africa. And so by the time Christianity pops up after Jesus' uh, crucifixion and burial and resurrection, there was no precedent for worship to be allowed amongst those that were calling and professing to be Christians and followers of Jesus. And so the religion itself was actually illegal. So how does a religion pop up in the middle of one of the most hostile and controlling empires that has ever ruled 
in human history. How does that happen? Because not only was the Jewish religion and whatever was left of the Jewish people as they were underneath Roman occupation, were, not only were they against the advancement of the church and the gospel, but Rome was itself. What could possibly have lended itself to allow Christianity after 300 years to have become the dominant worldview and religious thought of the Roman Empire? Following Paul's example. Following the exact example that Paul is talking about here in chapter 9. Choosing to serve others instead of fighting for their rights as Roman citizens. Choosing to serve those in need and who are destitute that no one else will. See, what the early church did is they met a need that was not being met inside of the Roman world. They clothed the homeless. They took in widows and orphans. They, they fed those. They served the sick and the destitute that were left to die. This was common practice amongst the early church to legitimize what God wanted to do through his people. And what you see, and Pastor Daniel shared this example uh, a couple months ago, one of the, the biggest things that the early church did was this, that if a child was born deformed or with some sort of illness or some sort of disability, oftentimes those children would be discarded after they were born underneath bridges outside of a city. And what happened is, is these house churches in, this in the various cities, they would go out take those children in, adopt them, and raise them. And what happened over the course of time is, is that as the Christians did this, the, the other people inside the city were like, why are these guys doing this? What would drive people to lay down all of their freedoms and their comforts and their ease of life to be able to do such a thing as this? And so they started asking questions. Why would you do this? What are you doing? Why are you taking care of these people? What are you doing? And every time their answer was, because God first served me in Christ. Because God loves and cares about them. I'm called to love and serve them because God loves and cares about them. And this type of sacrificial servitude is one of the main things that led to real societal change toward Christians. Going from an enemy of the state and persecuted to becoming the official religion of the Roman Empire. Guys, it wasn't as if the Roman Empire looked and, and, and Caesar said, you know what, I think, I think I'm going to pick Christianity. That's the, that's the one I pick and choose. No, what actually ended up happening is that people were joining and seeing life change and service inside of the church and coming to know Jesus as Lord and Savior at such a, vast uh, speed and in such large numbers that Rome said, really our only, our only option at this point is to nationalize this thing and try to lock arms with the church. And Paul gives us multiple examples of how he practically did this as a pastor and a church planner, right? If you keep going there through chapter nine, he says, to the Jews, I became a Jew. Right? It means he observed Jewish customs and rituals 
when he was around Jewish people, when he was around people from his own cultural and national heritage. He observed their festivals. He observed their rituals. He observed their dietary practices. He said to those under the law, he put himself under the law. He willingly chose to follow Old Testament dietary rules. He, he chose to observe rituals and rules and customs for those that were under the law and placed himself under them so that he might love those under the law well. He said to those outside the law, that would be Gentile Christians, he embraced the culture. Yeah, I'll, 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 I'll observe this festival with you as long as I don't have to worship. I'll, I'll follow your work schedule throughout the week. I'll do the things that you're doing, that he did what he needed to do so that he might share the gospel with him. Then he says this to the weak, <coughs> he became weak. Meaning he refused to eat the meat sacrificed to idols. Not because he wasn't free to do so, but because he wanted to not put a stumbling block in front of those that felt they were not free to do so. He says, I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some and I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in, the, in its blessings. He's saying, guys, you're, you're, you're fighting amongst things that don't matter. You're arguing with one another over things that are not worth arguing over. And as a follower of Jesus, I've learned that I can lay down my rights and preferences in order to serve others well, in order to love them well, in order to point them to Jesus. You know, I'm reminded of an example of a guy in our church some years ago who received a promotion at his job where he was going to have a, a number of employees that worked underneath of him. And as he took this job, one of the things he found is that that, that job required various work hours for his employees. Some had to come in early, some had to stay late. Um, some, of, some of the duties that, that were attached with that were, were just not fun. And it would often lead to, amongst the work team, grumbling and complaining. You know, if you had to work the early shift, everyone complained. If you had to work the later shift, everyone complained because who wants to do that, right? It's a lot more fun to work the nine to five shift. And this was a frustrating experience as they rotated every month. So it wasn't as if you just were hired to work the late shift or work the early shift. You, you rotated from month to month. And so when, when he was hired, what he did was is he said, okay, I'm gonna actually place myself on that schedule as a part of the rotation with my employees and my team. And he said when, when he first did that, that his boss was like, why are you doing this? Like the previous, the previous manager didn't do that. Why, why would you do that as well? And, and, and he looked at his boss and he said, well, you know, it's my belief that I shouldn't be asking my employees to do anything that I'm not willing to do myself because Jesus doesn't ask me to do anything that he didn't first do for me. And so I want to model his leadership 
as I manage these employees. And here was kind of the fascinating thing that came out of that entire experience for him. He began to, right, see that team go from grumbling and fighting with one another and people wanting to quit and not enjoying that time to that, that team started feeling like they were in it together. They started getting along better. When people needed other people to cover for them, they would cover shifts more readily. That there was less fighting and gossiping going on. That, that the employees actually started performing better with sales and service goals that they had inside of their job. And what it ultimately led to was opportunities for him to invite people to church, share the gospel with them, because he went from being an enemy who wouldn't work or do any of the things that he was asking them to do to locking arms with them, serving them, and working alongside them. To where some of those people started coming to their church and being a part of what was, what was going on here. This led to... to to friendships and relationships forming over time, all because they chose to serve over exercise their rights to not be on that schedule. See, what he experienced was the same joy that Paul shares in verse 23, where he said this, I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them in its blessings. See, that seems so counterintuitive, right? Most of the time, if you're given a choice of things to do, right, the default option is, well, which one am I going to enjoy the best? Which one do I want to do? You know, ever have that friend invite you to come help them move? If I have a choice, no thank you. Good luck getting your furniture into your house. It's not mine. Why would I want to do that? But oftentimes we found over the years, right, if you've ever helped someone move, how appreciative they are, how much, how much you're able to help them and serve them and love them. You ever walk away, you're like, man, I kind of feel good about that. It's kind of nice. Now you might be tired, especially if they live on the third floor of an apartment complex. Yes and amen. <laughs> but being able to serve and love on people, right, and, 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 and those outside the church have even discovered this. Right? There, is a, there is a worldview outside the church that talks about, yeah, I just want to serve people. I want to go do these things. There's entire organizations that are service organizations because they've discovered this secret that it's more blessed to serve others and help them than it is to live your life exactly how you want in individualistic freedom all the time. The only thing is, is they're missing the most life-giving component of it all, which is knowing who their God is and the motivation behind it all. But we see that Paul says, yeah, I partake. It's a blessing to do this. Yeah, laying down my rights, I love it. It's great. doesn't mean it's easy. But that he walks away blessed in this. And before any of us would sit there and say, well, yeah, well, Paul was unique and he was apostle and he, he had a special calling on his life. So he can't possibly say that this necessarily means it's for all of us. He's going to turn that on its head because he's going to finish up chapter 9 by comparing living life as a Christian to a number of different things. And he's going to give us examples of them. Look at verses 24 through 27 with me. He says, do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete 
exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. See, Paul compares his willingness to enslave himself and serve others that he ministers to an athlete competing in a race. And basically what he's saying is, hey, being a Christian, being a follower of Jesus can be compared to athletes who run long races. Now, some of you, how many of you guys are runners in here? Seven of you. Congratulations. The rest of us are looking at you like you're crazy. Why would you willingly run without a ball or some goal in mind? I had like a personal trainer years ago and be like, you should really start running. And I'm like, but why? Well, it's good for you. Well, so is sleep. <laughs> right? Like, not interested. Not fun. Well, you can listen to music. I could do that sitting down. <laughs> you put a ball in, put a goal in, in mind, maybe. Right? Just running? No thanks. All the runners in here are really angry at me right now. Right? But you, you're going to understand immediately what Paul is saying. Because those of us that aren't runners, we may have even tried it at one point in time, and we found out how hard it was. Like, this is, this is tough. Like, you have to take time out of your day. And like, your body gets tired, and you have to keep going. And you usually like have to change your dietary habits. And usually like, eventually if you start training to, to be able to have your body do more, you have to run even more. And, and what that involves is, is discipline and self-control over time. And some of you guys are, are so committed to it, you actually like compete and you want to you win a race or like the people that go down to Disney to, to run half marathon so they can stick that sticker on your, the back of your car. Because if you run a marathon, you didn't really actually do it if you don't have the sticker. Everyone knows that. And you do all these things and someone can just rip that sticker off. It's imperishable, just like the wreath that Paul is talking about here in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. But Paul's using this as an example because he says, hey, church, listen, listen to me. The disunity that exists among you over idol meat, over issues of celebrity inside of the church, over, who, over theological disagreements, all of those things can be dealt with if we would just choose to lay down our rights and serve one another. We could, we, could get, we, could, we could do away with all that, the fighting, the bickering, the nonsense. We could be done with all of that if we would just lay down our preferences. But it's not, it's not easy. It's like running a race. And you are going to have to, at times, discipline yourselves. Right? I shared with you guys last week how hard this is for me sometimes. I'm an Enneagram 8, and I love to debate and argue. Right? And the Holy Spirit sometimes is just this, this little voice in the back of my mind, right, as someone says something that I disagree with, saying, Kevin, shut up. You don't need to argue this one. Just let it go. Be quiet. And I'm like, but, but what they said is not true. Kevin, be quiet. My parents are here this morning. My dad's back there. Yep. <laughs> Grew up with that guy. 
right? If we would be willing to be disciplined by the Holy Spirit, if we would be willing to grow in self-control, if we would follow the examples and view this as something that God is doing in us. And, and, and guess what? Every runner misses days running sometimes. Sometimes they don't meet their goals, right? There's a context even in the illustration that Paul shares us for failure. And when we fail, Jesus says, my grace is sufficient for you. Let's step forward. Let's lock arms. Let's forgive one another. Let's extend grace to one another. Let's be patient with one another, forgiving one another, being long-suffering toward one another. And if we do this with the end goal in mind to ultimately make much of Jesus and share in the blessings of others who come to know Jesus as God and King, it'll be worth it. And this is why Paul says, look, I don't just do this for the fun of it, right? He, he, he compares himself to the athletes. He says, I don't run aimlessly. The same way that anyone that's seriously training for a race doesn't just go out and run aimlessly. No, they have a, they have a plan. They, they know how much they're going to run. They know how fast they want to do it. They know what their intervals are going to be. They might know what kind of food they're going to eat to prepare their body, how much water they're going to drink. They don't do it aimlessly. They know exactly where they're trying to go so they might finish. He goes, I have a plan. I have a reason for my actions. There's a reason why around the week I don't eat the meat, and when I'm around some of you, I'll eat the meat. There's a reason why I do those things. Because I want to make much of Jesus and disciple you. He says, I don't box as one beating the air. He's like, I don't waste time. Life is short. I'm not going to argue with you over this issue. It's not worth it. It's not worth it to me to argue over these things. If you're, if you're sitting there thinking like, well, how, how do I know? How do I know like when I might need to take a stand on something and, and where I might need to surrender my rights or freedoms and be willing to serve others? You can ask yourself this, some of these simple questions. Will, will what I'm about to do make much of Jesus or make much of me? Will, it, it, will the decision I make make Jesus look great or make me happy and make me look great? Will others see the glory of God in what I'm about to do? Or will they just see me? And let that guide your decision-making process. As Paul disciplines his body and practices self-control, he does the things that are necessary in his life to advance the good news of what Jesus has done to save and reconcile sinners to God. Now, well, what do you mean? What do you mean he disciplines himself? What do you mean he practices self-control? Ever read the book of Acts? Paul endured emotional and physical abuse, persecution, physical turmoil, illness, stonings, constantly moving, all so that he could serve and preach the gospel. Now why? Why would someone do that? It's a fair question. It's the same question I ask of any marathon runner. Why? The same way that there is a crown or reward that, that, that awaits those who finish the marathon, Paul says there is a crown that he receives that is not perishable, but eternal. For eternity, Paul 
is going to see those that have come to know Jesus as Lord and King. And he's going to worship God with them in eternal glory. That is his reward. Anyway, guys, there are people sitting in this room this morning that you are going to have an eternal impact on. Hey, my old uh, Campus Crusade for Christ director, I think they call you guys crew now because they changed the name, they rebranded. But my old director used to say at the end of every year, he would, he would give us a talk and then he would say, hey, we're meeting at the third statue past the, gate, the pearly gates. Now, I have no idea what heaven's going to look like, so we may get there and he may have given false directions. <laughs> but the point he was making is in eternal glory, we're going to get to be together doing the one thing we were designed to do, which is worship our king. To spend eternity making much of him. And guys, this isn't just Paul's example to us. This isn't just Paul's call on us, right? It was Jesus's as well. Turn over to John chapter 15 with me. This is Jesus's words to his disciples, starting in verse 12. Jesus says, this is my commandment. Right? It's not a suggestion. It's not like, hey, I think this might be right. Now, here you have God's son in the flesh talking to his disciples. And he says, this is my commandment to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. Now, that word love has been hijacked by our culture. So then Jesus is going to define it for them so that we may never in any generation forget what he means by loving one another. Greater love has no one than this that someone laid down his life for his friends. Jesus says, you want to know what love is? You want to know what real love is? Serving and laying down your life for someone else's good. As we saw in Philippians chapter two, this is exactly what Jesus did for us. As he went to Calvary, as he hung from the cross, taking on the wrath of God for our sake, satisfying the punishment that was rightfully ours. He took our place. He served us. He laid down his life for us. And as he offers us new life and freedom in him, he extends to us the command to serve and love one another as he served and loved us. So what Paul is teaching the church at Corinth here is not some new revolutionary way. Like he stole it straight from Jesus. In the early church, they stole it from Paul. And as I was preparing for this sermon and trying to get us kind of a clear and concise view, I stole from church fathers that came before me, men and women who loved Jesus well and did this well. But we trace it all back to Jesus. He is our ultimate example. We serve our Christian and brothers with humility. We help them. We pray for them. We share meals together. We're hospitable towards one another. We're there for one another, willing to lay down our own rights and preferences in order to serve them. 
And we do the same with our non-Christian neighbor. Help them. Pray for them. Share meals and show hospitality towards them. Most importantly, so that we might share the good news of how Jesus has transformed our lives. And in that transformation, how he has laid down his life for them as well. And in doing this, we share in that same blessing that Paul talked about in verse 23. I do it all for the sake of the gospel. That I may share with them in its blessings. And that's where we discover that true freedom is not found in the first, second, third, fourth. I don't even know how many amendments there are. Sorry to my high school government teacher. There's a lot. It's not found in that. Guys, true freedom is not found in your citizenship with any country, club, group on this planet. It's only truly found as a son or daughter of your creator. And church, if we do this together, I promise you this. If we are a church that's not fighting over masks, not fighting over voting rights, not saying that we can't get involved in those things. Don't hear me on that. There are, there are plenty of proper places where we can even lay down our rights and preferences to serve people well in those various areas. But so much of what I see being exercised by other professing brothers and sisters in the faith right now is not centered around this. And the reason why we're not finding unity, the reason why we're not making much of Jesus, the reason why there's so much yelling and screaming is that the foundation is wrong. You may come to the same conclusion on some of these things, but I can guarantee you that if your heart changes from being right on these various issues that are creating disunity and division amongst the body of Christ and in our world, and you extend, you instead move from a posture of service and love, that will make a difference because that is what makes Jesus look glorious because it's what Jesus did for us. And when we honor him, when we model him, when we exalt him, that is when we are following what God has called us to do.